I trust that it is well with your soul. And uh, if it's not, well, I trust after this conference it will be well with your soul. And especially after this lesson, our first one on trials, I hope that the Lord will use it to strengthen each of us in this faithless age. It is a faithless age, isn't it? Um, I'm 60 years of age now, and so I haven't lived that long, but I've lived long enough. And uh, certainly with what is going on in the political world, in the global world, and even in the Church of Jesus Christ, um, we are living in a faithless age. And uh, Debbie and I met, I met a lady on a, a plane this year in our travels, and she happened to be from Oklahoma, and we've been having lunch with her per her request. And um, we've been getting with her quite a bit. And recently she asked, uh, why do you think, she's not a believer, but we've been sharing the gospel with her. And she says, why do you believe that Christianity is waning? And I said, I can tell you why, because Jesus said it would. And before he comes back, there's going to be a great falling away. And I said, I believe we're seeing that. And I do believe, ladies, we are seeing that in the church of Jesus Christ. We are seeing a falling away. And so um, that's why we've entitled this conference, Being a Faithful Woman in a Faithless Age, because we need faithful women. We need faithful men, too. But we need faithful women that will stand true to the Word of God in this evil age that we're living in, when so many um, are apostatizing from the faith and leaving the faith that they once held dear. So my prayer is that um, that the Lord will use these messages to strengthen you in your walk with Christ. Uh, somebody told me this morning I look like a pumpkin, so sorry about that. But, you know, just pretend I'm out in, you know, beautiful uh, Massachusetts. So um, I, the leaves are gorgeous. Oklahoma has all four seasons. But we are just now beginning, I mean, it's still 80 degrees, so when I thought about packing, I was like, a sweater? Are you kidding me? I'm still in my, my capris and tank tops at home. But um, anyway, we're still, I think today's supposed to be 85 where I live. So, but it's beautiful here, so pretty, and um, I, I love the fall time. So anyway, I'll give you, I know this day's going to go so fast, they always do, but um, we're going to try to teach four sessions and we are going to be looking at this morning being faithful in our trials and then being faithful in our speech. Um, If we're going to be faithful women, we need to guard our tongue and so we're going to be looking at that. And then right before lunch, being faithful to obey and uh, then after lunch, being faithful in our friendships. And ladies, if you want to stay faithful in a faithless age, you want to pick right girlfriends. So we're going to talk a little bit about that um, in our last session. So before we get started, um, let's pray together and we will open the Bible this morning to a classic passage on trials in James. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning with, with humble hearts, Lord. We know that you are holy, that you are sitting in your heaven, that you are dwelling there and we are so thankful and yet Lord, in your mercy, you are dwelling here with us now. There's nowhere that we can run where we can escape your presence. You are here. You are scanning our hearts. You are scanning the thoughts of every woman right now. You know what's in her heart. You know what's in her thoughts. And, Lord, you have fearfully and wonderfully made her. And I thank you for each of these ladies that have taken a precious Saturday away from their families, away from their work, to do the thing that is most needful, and that is to sit at your feet and to learn from your word. And Father, I pray as the teacher that I would be mindful of what I teach, that I would stay true to the word of God, that I would not be uh, 
in any way compromising, in any way um, deviating from the scriptures. I pray, Father, that you would give uh, teaching grace as well as listening grace. I thank you for this church and their kindness to me and Debbie thus far. And Lord, I just pray. I know this this day will go fast, but I do pray, Father, that we would have some meaningful conversations with one another uh, during the breaks and during our lunch hour together. We love you, Father. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for saving us. And, oh, God, help us to be faithful women in this faithless generation that we live in. For Christ's sake, I pray in his glory only. Amen. Well, there's a couple of ladies here that were at a conference I did, and I said, oh, that's the conference I'm going to use my opening from. It was, uh, what would we say, seven years ago in Connecticut? You were there. And um, it was the first time I ever heard this song, and I want to open them. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing to you. You don't want to hear a 60-year-old woman singing. But the song went something like this. Though trials will come, don't fear, don't run. Lift up your eyes, hold fast, be strong, have faith. Keep on believing, lift up your eyes. For God is at work in us, molding and shaping us. Out of his love for us, making us more like Jesus. Consider it joy, pure joy, when troubles come. Many trials will make you strong. Consider it joy, pure joy, and stand your ground. Then at last you'll wear a crown. And ladies, I wonder if the author of this song had in mind James 1, 1 to 4, because that's exactly what he says. So if you would, let your eyes fall on James 1, 1 through 4. As we look at this topic of being faithful in our trials, James says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire lacking nothing. And that's all we're going to cover in this first session. Now you have an outline for every one of the sessions. And in this session, we're going to look a little bit at the introduction um, because I don't like to just jump into a a couple of verses without uh, looking at the context. Context is so important. And ladies, if we're going to be faithful women in a faithless generation, we need to always remember context. And a lot of people today are ripping verses out of their context to prove things that God never meant to say to us. So we're going to look at a little bit at the introduction. Then we're going to look at our reaction to trials, what that should be, as well as our reward to trials. Now, part of the introduction is looking at who this guy James is. And notice he begins his this letter with his name, James. And that's very different from how you and I would write a letter. Uh, Janet Cooley and I have been emailing back and forth, and and I don't start my emails to Janet saying, Susan, (laughs) you know, Susan, a servant of Jesus Christ. I say, dear Janet, and then I tell her what I need to tell her, and then I say, usually I say, for the master, Susan Heck, or lovingly, Susan Heck, depends on uh, how well I know the person. After this weekend, I'm going to say lovingly. Janet, Debbie, and I have been talking about how she's such an easy person to be around. We just feel at home with her. That's how we described it. And so you'll get the lovingly part instead of for the master but uh, that's not how we begin our letters is it and James does but in the biblical world that's what they would do you see that in the Pauline epistles Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ and so they would start their letters with their name so who is James 
you know, three of our sessions are, today are going to be out of his epistle. So uh, we would probably be, learn something about him. His, his name, the Hebrew name is actually Jacob. And there are four James in the scripture. We won't look at each one of this. But this one specifically that is writing the epistle of James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, ladies, and I think this is very important, especially for those of you that are reared in a Christian home like I was, but never had genuine saving faith like I did not until the age of 30. But James, here's a man that was brought up with the very son of God. And yet he was not a believer at first um, because it says in John 7, 5, even his brothers, which would be James, did not believe in him. They thought he was crazy. I mean, they thought he was insane. And ladies, let me point out, just because you're reared in a Christian home like I was, I was raised in a godly home. My father was a minister of the gospel. I heard the gospel often. I got saved and baptized three times, but none of it ever took. And, uh, but some of us have grossly erred. And that is that we think that just because we're raised in a godly home, I was even married to a pastor uh, who, by the way, almost called the wedding off the night before we got married because he could begin to wonder about my salvation. But just because we have godly parents, godly husbands, godly children, godly grandparents, does not make us a Christian. And James is a prime example of this. Of this. None of us in this room are going to enter into heaven on the coattail of somebody else. You know, you're not going to go in there holding on to your mother's skirt or your husband's coattail. We're all going to each individually stand before the Lord and give an account. Now, we do not have a written account of James' conversion, like Paul, you know, on the Damascus Road. In Acts chapter 9, it was very dramatic, you know, a great light from heaven came down, and, and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And, of course, we know it was a dramatic conversion. And so we don't have an account of this, but we do know that James was definitely born again because he eventually chaired the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And then also, Paul says, something interesting about him calls him actually one of the pillars of the church in Galatians 1 19 uh, he mentions that James Cephas and John were pillars of the church and so he was a, a strong uh, foundation for the church now we do not know a lot about him like we do Paul we do know that he was known as James the just we also know that he was known to have camel's knees and the reason being is because he would spend so much time in prayer. He would be on his knees praying at the temple doors. And they said that he prayed so much that his knees became like uh, camel's knees. And they were really rough. And um, so no wonder he can write at the end of James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much because James was a man of prayer. And I wish we had time to talk about prayer this weekend, but we don't. Um, church history tells us that James died a martyr's death, like many of the apostles. Uh, what happened in his situation? He was out on the temple steps. He was preaching, and um, the persecutors, of course, did not care for his preaching. And actually, they would begin to uh, physically hurt him. And one of the men that was standing by had a big club. It was what they used to use to pound out clothes. And he took this big club and knocked James over the head, and it says that he fell down the stairs, and he died. An interesting church history tells us that his words as he was falling down to the ground were these, I beseech thee, Lord God, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they're doing. And so very similar to what his brother said from the cross, forgive them, Father, forgive them. And even Stephen, as he was being stoned, said, Lord, I beseech thee, do not lay this charge to their account. Um, And so this is the man who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote this epistle to us that is so practical. In fact, it was the first book that I wrote, uh, Ladies' Bible Study, because it is probably my favorite New Testament book. It's very practical, very black and white. You know, you're either in or you're out, and has some very practical things. So, after he introduces himself, what does he say? Hey, I'm the brother of Jesus, you know? I'm I'm Jesus' brother. I'm the pastor at Jerusalem. Hey, did you take note of every, you know, all my accomplishments? No. Notice what he says, ladies. He says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, what is that? Well, the Greek word is doulos, and it actually means slave. This is somebody who is in, who really someone else owns his life. It's a, he's in ownership to his master, and his master is someone he can never say no to. That's what a slave is. And James says, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ladies, isn't it interesting in this introduction that James confesses that his earthly, older half-brother Jesus is his Lord? (laughs) Is his Lord. It's kind of like Mary after, uh, when she found out she was going to have a baby, she said, you know, my, my spirit rejoices in what? God, my Savior. And yet she was getting ready to have the Son of God. God, my Savior. Well, after he tells us who he is, he then tells us who he's writing to. And this is very important as we consider trials. And you know, as I was uh, preparing and studying for this time that we're going to have this weekend, ladies, this is very important as we think about being faithful in a faithless generation. Because I will tell you, it doesn't matter which of the four presidential candidates gets into office. America is going down. Apart from God's mercy, America is going down. And we as Christians, and it's already started to happen are going to be persecuted. And James is writing to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, who were a group of Christians that were being horribly persecuted. Uh, Many of them were forced to flee their homes. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. Many of them were being uh, used as torches for Nero's garden at night. I mean, this was horrible persecution that was going on. And so we need to keep this in mind. I mean, I know a lot of you today, maybe some of your trials are... Uh, are very minute to what some of our brothers and sisters are going through in third world countries where they're actually losing their lives for the sake of the gospel, many of them being beheaded for the sake of the gospel. In fact, my husband teases me from time to time. He says, Susan, you're going to be one of the first ones that ISIS is going to behead, but oh well, I'll just get to heaven before you do, so I'll see you there. But... um, Anyway, he's writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. It's actually called the Diaspora. And it's very sad. These Jewish Christians were not taken in uh, by their kinsmen. They were rejected. They were persecuted. Uh, Some of them were fed to the lions. I mean, it was a horrible time. In fact, uh, people will tell us, if you want to get a feel for what was really happening when James wrote this epistle, do some reading on the Holocaust. That's an idea of how horrible this persecution. And so it was probably one of these tribes that this this letter actually was written to. Now, we need to stop and ask a question. Why would a loving God do such a thing to his people? Why is God allowing his wrath to be poured out right now in the United States of America? Why does God permit Christians to die 
to suffer, to be persecuted. Well, it says in Acts, and you don't have to turn there now, but it says after a great persecution arose, guess what happened? The people scattered, and right after that it says, and they went preaching the gospel. Ladies, sometimes God has to scatter his people. Sometimes he brings persecution into our lives for a bigger purpose, and we don't always see that. Sometimes God has to divide his people in order to multiply his kingdom. You know, sometimes we get very comfortable in our churches, and uh, we have these holy cliques, you know, and, and it's us four and no more. But sometimes God scatters us so that we can, for a bigger purpose, it's not about us. Life is not about us. It's for the glory of God and his kingdom. And sometimes God's intervention in our lives seems unpleasant, seems unwelcome. But ladies, these may be sewing appointments in the midst of a faithless world. Well, James begins his letter to these persecuted and scattered believers with one simple word. Look at it. Greeting. You know what this means? Rejoice. Be glad. Be satisfied. Greeting. Now, ladies, remember who he's writing to. Twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. They could have said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, I believed in this Jesus. You know, I've made this Jesus my Lord, and now look what's happened to me. I mean, where's the abundant life? You know, where's the, the Christ that died for me to be wealthy, healthy, and wise, which is what is taught in many of our circles, especially in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wait a minute. I believed in this Jesus, and now my home's been taken away. Some of my loved ones have died for the gospel, and you're telling me to rejoice, to be glad, to be satisfied? Ladies, I'm sure many of them are just like you and me. You know, no, no temptation, but such as is common demand, right? We all suffer with the same thing. And I imagine many of them are just like you, just like me, want to grumble and complain about our lot in life. But James says, no, rejoice, be glad, be satisfied. So his greeting, ladies, his, his, his beginning of this letter is to prepare the readers for the admonition that's going to follow on trials. Well, after the greeting, James centers now in on the subject of trials, and we have a twofold outline here. First of all, we're going to see what our reaction to trials should be in verse 2, and then secondly, our reward to trials in verses 3 and 4. Notice what he says after the greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, just to make it very clear, James is writing to brethren, Adalphos. These are Christian brothers and sisters. He's not writing to unbelievers. In fact, James is a letter that is written to test our faith, to see if we're in the faith. He's writing to what he believes is an assumed group of Christians. But yet, like many, even in our churches today, I've heard many pastors say that most of our churches are filled with unbelievers, and that's probably true. And so he's writing to make sure that they're really in the faith. But he does call them brothers because they call themselves brothers. And he says, my brethren, my Adalphos, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, the word count in the Greek actually means to consider, to regard your trials as joy. Now, what does joy mean? Well, joy means something in the highest sense. Now, ladies, notice, James is not saying to enjoy your trial. I mean, how many of you right now are enjoying the trial you're in, you know? He's not saying enjoy it, but what he's saying is 
When you have a trial in your life, you should respond with a deliberate, intelligent appraisal, not an emotional reaction. Ladies, you must look at your trials from God's perspective and recognize that God brought the trial into your life and it's going to produce something valuable. Many trials make you strong, right? They make you strong. Now, again, James is not saying enjoy your trials, but joy in them. The trial itself may not be joyful. I've been through lots of trials. The trial itself may not be joyful, but the encounter is. The encounter with the trial is joyful because I know that God is working in my life to conform Susan Joy Heck to the image of Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, I can be joyful. Ladies, do you remember what is said about our Lord in Hebrews 12 too? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of God. Did you understand what the writer to the Hebrews was saying? Did Jesus encounter the cross with a smile? Was he laughing hysterically as he went to the cross? No, he was not. The scripture tells us he was in great agony there in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, he prayed three times. Oh, my father, if it's possible, please let this cup pass for me. Get this trial out of my life. I don't, it's not going to be fun. But he said, nevertheless, not what I want, but you want. Ladies, Christ considered the trial as joy. Why? That was set before him. Why? Because he knew it was producing something valuable. What was that something valuable that it was producing? The trial to the cross. Salvation, right? Are we awake this morning? Salvation, yeah. I think they need more coffee, Janet. Where did Janet go? It was producing something valuable. Ladies, otherwise, if he hadn't, what? We wouldn't be here today. You might as well be go out and collecting leaves, you know, to put in your scrapbooks or something. There'd be no reason for us to get together to get today because there would be no salvation for mankind, no salvation for you and for me. But the joy that was set before me endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now set down on the right hand of God. Now, ladies, when is the last time you went through a trial saying, great, this is a reason for nothing but joy, happiness, and thanksgiving? You know, most unbelievers, or most believers, I should say, do not view these difficulties from God, but as dirty, rotten deals. Ladies, we fail to see that James says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And you know that every good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father of light, you know the context, if you'll look at the context, it's trials. The gift is trials. Now, I know trial may not be a gift that you're asking for for Christmas this year. Have you ever asked the Lord for trials? Bring, the tr- bring it on, bring it on. James says every good and perfect gift, context is trials, comes down from the Father of lights. Ladies, suffering trials can be gifts. We fail to live in view of eternity that each trial in our life can be used to prepare us to be like Christ, prepare us to be like him. And by the way, just a little side note, because I am 60, so now I'm really an older woman. I have found in my life, if I choose not to respond to the trial that God brings into my life, if I choose not to respond in the correct way, you know what happens? 
I usually get a repeat of that trial, only it's worse the second time. Seriously, and that is dead serious. I'm really being serious there. So, what is James saying when he says we fall into trials? Where the word fall in the Greek means to fall into something so that you're entirely surrounded by it. Um, In fact, it's the thought of a difficult situation that comes unexpectedly and you're just all of a sudden surrounded by it. It's the same Greek word that is used to describe the man that's in the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the man just walking along his way, and all of a sudden he's accosted by thieves, and they strip him and leave him, they beat him up and take all of his stuff and leave him half dead. <laughs> I mean, this guy was just minding his own business. He was walking probably from one town to another. But ladies, isn't, how, isn't that how trials come? I mean, you don't really usually get a preparation that morning when you get up and a little voice from heaven says, hey, you're, today you're going to encounter this trial. Um, just the other day, I was, on, I was uh, on my way to Indiana for a counseling conference, and my son texted me, and he said, Mom, he said, did Cindy tell you what happened to me? My son was also going to this counseling conference, and I said, no, what happened to you? And he sends me a picture of his face, and he fell at the airport, and his head was gaped open, and he had to have 15 stitches in his head. And um, so I said, no, I mean, and he was just minding his own business, getting off the plane in Indianapolis, running to greet four of my grandchildren and give him a big hug. And he fell. And I mean, Charles was just minding his own business, trying to be a good uncle. And isn't that how trials come? Unexpe- I mean, you're just minding your own business, going through life, having a great time. And then next it's like, wham. Well, that's what James says. Count it all joy when you fall unexpectedly, suddenly into various trials. In fact, when that happens to me, not that I've gashed my head open, but when I fall into various trials and they come suddenly, I often, my mind often goes to Peter. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is sent to test you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice, why? You're partakers of Christ's sufferings. And so, lady, we need to remember that. Now, interesting word here for trial. Because the word trial actually has a double meaning. It is those outward trials, yes, that we suddenly fall into, but it also can be the same Greek word used for inward temptations. Because sometimes what happens when you and I don't respond to a trial the way we're supposed to, then that becomes a temptation to sin. But we don't have time to get into the context, but James is very clear. Let no one say when he's tempted, verse 13, I'm tempted of God. Why? Because God cannot tempt anybody with evil. And so many times we respond wrongly to a trial. We shake our fist at God. We get angry. And so, you know, hey, that trial that God meant for good can now be turned into evil because you've chose to sin during your trial and get angry. In fact, I was so proud of my son because by the time we got to the hotel at midnight, he got home from the hospital at midnight, and he and I were sharing a room during this counseling conference. And uh, I thought, well, surely he's not going to go to the conference. I mean, he's banged up. It wasn't just his head. It's everywhere. And the next day, I said, Charles, you're not going to go to the pre-conference, are you? He goes, yeah, Mom, I'm going. I said, okay. And he was just a trooper. And uh, I thought, wow, that's that's really amazing because I think I might use that as an opportunity just to stay in bed. Uh, but he didn't. Trials are sent to test us. Are we going to pass? Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to deny the Lord? You know, I think about Job who um, lost 10 of his kids, lost everything he had, you know, uh, got all these boils on his skin and started scraping himself with a piece of pottery and had a wife that forgot to read The Excellent Wife and and um, <laughs> told him to curse God and die. And you know what it says? In all this, Job did not sin. 
He did not sin with his mouth. He tore his clothes, fell on the ground, and worshipped and said, Shall we not receive good as well as evil from the Lord? He didn't sin in all this. Now, ladies, that's a trial that you and I can't even imagine going through. Can't even imagine. We were talking on the way when Janet picked us up this morning at the hotel about a mutual friend we have that just lost a daughter to cancer and a um, little, little child, and we were talking about her strength during this trial. And then Debbie and I were telling her about a lady that I counsel down in Florida whose daughter tried to kill her just recently for the ninth time by burning her house down. And the child is only just turned nine. And, uh, but we were talking about how this woman's faith is so strong, even during this trial, and how this other woman who just lost a child to cancer, how her, her, her faith is strong. Ladies, trials are sent to test our faith, not to cause us to sin. They're sent to make us strong. Many trials make you strong. Well, James says that these trials we fall into, notice, are various. What does that mean? Well, the word various actually is a word that is used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. In other words, our trials are all different colors, right? I mean, if we were to take a poll, I think there's about six or seven women around each table. If we were just to go around and ask each woman, what is your trial? Some of you, they, you would say, I'm going through a very dark black trial. I just found out I have breast cancer or My husband, I just found, is committing adultery or looking at porn. Or I just lost a mom or a dad. Or I just lost a child. Or my child just burned my house, you know, tried to kill me for the ninth time. Very black trials. Just like these persecuted Christians. Forced to leave their home. Many have been fed to lions. I mean, horrible persecution. But some of you might say, well, my trial's kind of, it's not as bad as yours, but it's kind of red. I mean, my husband just told me we're going to be moving from Massachusetts to Oklahoma. Can you imagine going to Oklahoma? I mean, that's a red trial. Or maybe you have an abusive husband, wayward child, a difficult marriage. Maybe you're suffering persecution for righteousness sake. That might be a red trial. And some of you, especially you young mothers, you might say, well, my trial's not as bad as yours. I mean, mine was just... My child spilled his milk this morning right before I'm trying to get out of the house to come here, you know, and I got impatient. And so that's what James saying. Our trials are various. He's not talking necessarily saying that we have a lot, even though I know that some of you in this room feel like you've had your fill of trials like every day. But it's they're varied. They're different colors. We all have different kinds of trials. But ladies, I am here to tell you this morning, God's grace is sufficient no matter what color your trial is, whether it's black, red, yellow, orange, whatever color it is, God's grace is sufficient. Now, our trials do many times come unannounced, suddenly, unexpected. How do we respond? Do we shake our fist at God? Do we bow our knee in humble submission at what we can learn through the process? And remember, ladies, these Christians had a far greater challenge than you and I do. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have this challenge. And I do believe if we continue, if the Lord does not return, there is a good chance that many of us in this room right now at some point might be martyred for our faith. And I think we need to keep that in mind. So what is the Christian's reaction to trials? We are to joy, not enjoy them. But we are to have joy in them, knowing that it's producing something valuable. Now, does that mean I don't cry during a trial? Of course. I mean, many trials I've encountered have produced many tears. (laughs) 
That's not what James is saying. We don't deny the emotional creature that God has given, given to us, but we know that he's producing something valuable. Well, we turn from our reaction to trial to our reward. You might say, Susan, why should I want to, why should I regard my trials with joy? I mean, what's the purpose of all this suffering anyway? Well, notice what he says. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patient. The word know here in the Greek is gnoskos, which suggests a knowledge that is grounded in personal experience. Ladies, as a daughter of the king, you should not be ignorant of the fact that God sends trials for a purpose. That's what he's saying. You should know this. There is a purpose for why he does this. And you and I need to discern what is that purpose. Why am I going through this trial? In fact, James says we should know by experience that what? It produces something. Look what it produces. Patience. Patience. Ladies, the testing of our faith has a significant impact on our spiritual maturity. Now, very interesting. This is the first time that faith is mentioned in the book of James. And it's interesting that he mentions faith before he mentions works, the work being patience, right? Ladies, we are saved by grace through faith alone, but that faith produces something, right? It should produce works. Faith works, but we must have it before it can produce something. That's why I have to ask myself as a Christian and as a pastor's wife, when I see believers that are going through trials and they begin to vacate worship, they begin to vacate their service to God, their ministry, many of them apostatize from the faith. I go, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Their faith should be working. Why isn't their faith working? Why are they vacating the church? Why are they leaving the ministry? Why are they not joyful? Why, Why isn't it doing something? And that's what James says here. Your faith does something. It produces something. And many times that something is patience. Now, you might say, well, what is that? Well, patience is probably what most of us in this room don't have, right? We always, in fact, sometimes we tease each other and say, just pray that I can be patient. And in fact, I give that prayer request a lot to people and say, how can I pray for you? And I say, well, sometimes patience. And I go, what am I asking for? Because when I ask you to pray for patience, that means what? More trials are going to come to see if I'm going to be patient. But the word patient actually means a person who bravely remains upright and firm under adverse circumstances without collapsing. This is a person who's steadfast. In fact, it has a secondary meaning, very interesting, that means to wait and expecting something. And so when you put the two together, it pictures a person going under a trial. They're under a very heavy load, maybe burned down with that trial. But at the same time, they have this expectant hope of being released from this trial. So they're looking to heaven, looking for that release from that trial. Ladies, would you say that you are trying to escape right now from the trial that you're going through? I want to encourage you. Stay there. Abide. Remain. Be faithful. Wait for God's timing for his dismissal of the trial, his reward to the trial. See what God's going to do in your life through your trial. James says, faith produces patience. I think of what Paul writes in Romans 5, knowing this, that we glory in tribulations. Why? 
Because tribulation produces what? Perseverance or patience, character, and hope. James goes on to say in verse 4, But let patience have her perfect work. In other words, let it, let it produce something. Let it not be hindered. Let God do his work in your life. And ladies, let him do it while you don't mem- murmur or hinder the process. In fact, the word work here indicates that endurance should be active and not passive. You know what James saying? While you're being under that heavy load, that trial, you don't just sit around and say, well, I'm just going to let go and let God do what he wants to do. No. You move around. You still serve the Lord. You still raise your children to the glory of God. You still cook meals. You still go through life. You know, sometimes I tell people, the one thing I learned from Elizabeth Elliot, well, I learned lots from that woman and who's gone now to be with the Lord. But, you know, when I would go to her conferences and she said, when you don't know what to do, just do the next thing. And so when I'm going through a trial or I feel like, Lord, I just can't do this. I can't get through this day. I just tell myself, Susan, just do the next thing. What's the next thing you need to do? Pay this bill, make this meal, go to the grocery store, uh, write this email, you know, just do the next thing. That's what James saying. We don't just, you know, become ineffective for the Lord and sit around and do nothing and wait for the trial to pass. We exercise our energy. As I said, I've seen believers who have experienced trials and suddenly they vanish. They abandon the worship of God, his people, ministry. Ladies, that should not be our reaction to trials. Now, why are we to let patience have her perfect work? Notice what James says. So that you can be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Now, ladies, this does not mean you're going to be sinless. Nobody in here is sinless. In fact, if you're one of those people that say, I have no sin, I want to meet your husband and ask him if he would say that about you. It's not that you're going to be perfect, but it does mean you'll be complete. You're growing into that. You're growing into that completion, a goal, an end, all parts being present. Ladies, trials are sent to complete us to perfect us, to mold us into the image. You know, if you look at your life a year ago and you consider your life today, you should be be very different. If your life hasn't changed since last year, something's wrong. Something's wrong. In fact, if you look at yourself, if if we could go forward in time about five years and you would see that woman five years from now, you should be intimidated by her. Like, who is that? I mean, she's really a mature Christian. That's the whole idea. Our trials are sent to perfect us. And unfortunately, too many believers or professing believers reject their trials. You know what happens? They stifle the potential of spiritual growth. And had these persecuted Jewish Christians responded righteously to trials, they would be able to live victoriously, wanting nothing. Now, ladies, have you ever been around a seasoned saint? I mentioned Elizabeth Elliot a while ago. I used to love to go to all her conferences. Why? I learned so much from her suffering. In fact, this summer, our ladies uh, did six biographical sketches of women. I told them the only, the only uh, thing that had to be mandate was that these women had to be dead because so many women are apostatizing just like men. So the choices they picked were Amy Carmichael, Corey Ten Boom, Frances Havergale, Susanna Spurgeon, Catherine Von Bora, who's Martin Luther's wife, and Fanny Crosby. And I had six different women do teaching, and it was really a great summer. But you notice what I noticed about each one of them, besides they all memorized great volumes of Scripture, was they all suffered tremendously, physically, spiritually. 
But you know what? Many trials made them strong, made them seasoned saints, made them women that are attractive that we read about now in history books. They have left a legacy for you and for me. And there's something very attractive about those type of women. They're seasoned. Ladies, their Christ-like qualities, their sufferings, their trials have conformed them into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, you might be sitting there this morning saying, you know, I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. But do we really? Do we really want to be like Jesus? Because if we do, then we should expect many trials and many kinds of trials, yellow, green, black. We should expect them. What did Paul say in his little letter to the church at Philippi? I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering." So I can be conformed to him. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, I want to pursue a course just like Jesus. I want to suffer like he did. Why? So I can be conformed to his image. So I can know him. Ladies, the only way Paul could know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings was to go through many trials. And we know he did suffer much. Many trials make you strong. Well, in closing our thoughts on this precious portion of God's word, I want to leave you with two major principles. Number one, your reaction to trials. Ladies, the reality of the Christian life is this. You're going to have trials. We're all going to have them. If you don't have them today, just wait till you go home this afternoon because there will probably be something there. There usually is. The epistle of James tells us they'll come. Job says man's life is full of troubles. As the sparks fly upward, our life is full of troubles. But there has to be a proper reaction to your trials. James says your reaction should be joy. It's not a forced smile but an inner understanding and contentment that God is at work. Is this your response to your current trial? Is it your response to your current trial? Secondly, our rewards. Reacting to trials with an inner contentment of joy produces something, and it produces things that are profound. Patience, steadfastness, perfection. And completion. Have you seen these qualities matured in your life through your trials? Have they made you more patient, more steadfast, more perfect, more complete? That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? My sisters, we need women today who allow the hardships of life to bring them to perfection and maturity in Jesus Christ. Will you respond righteously to your trials? And will you allow your trials to bring you to perfection and to the conformity of our Lord Jesus Christ and his will? I pray that you will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these four verses, short but powerful. And, oh, Lord, only if we could apply them and live them out. And I pray that you'll give us the grace to do so. And I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.